Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. At the 50th anniversary of Earth Day, Americans are fighting for survival, not only against COVID-19 and economic collapse, but also against polluters and their friends in D.C. who are destroying our environment for profit. The choices that we make today are going to determine the path of this country for many, many years. And we absolutely want to see this money be spent as a down payment for a Green New Deal and a world that moves us beyond fossil fuels to a regenerative economy. And for this month's episode of the F Word on Fascism, voices on policing and militarism in the midst of a pandemic. Getting sent to jail is now potentially a death sentence with what we know about how this virus spreads. And if we have the police out there supposedly enforcing public health by arresting people and putting them in jail, that would actually undermine our response to the virus. These stories and much more coming up. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam. The number of confirmed cases of the coronavirus in the D.C., Maryland, and Virginia region doubled in one week to more than 20,000 with 750 deaths by Thursday, April 16th. And of course, those numbers are likely higher because testing remains very limited. Nationally, there are at least 33,000 deaths, including 4,000 added in New York City this week to include many who likely died due to COVID-19 outside of hospitals and nursing homes, but were never tested. The United States makes up more than a quarter of the 146,000 deaths worldwide. This week, as the Trump administration faced mounting criticism about inadequate response to the health crisis, Trump stepped up criticism of China, which first reported to the world about the virus in January, and he cut off critical aid to the World Health Organization, which he without evidence blamed for causing the slow response in the U.S. In a statement following Trump's announcement to cut off aid, U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres said now is, quote, not the time to reduce the resources for the operations of the World Health Organization or any humanitarian organization in the fight against the virus, end quote. The slow U.S. response, the failure to quickly implement widespread testing, is what is necessitating the lockdown of individuals, the shuttering of businesses, organizations, and social life across the country, and the spiraling of the U.S. into an economic depression. Despite the advice of health professionals, There were calls by advisors in Trump's inner circle to reopen the economy, as well as rallies by his supporters in Kentucky, North Carolina, Michigan, and Virginia, with some photographed carrying assault rifles. Michonne Maddock of the Michigan Conservative Coalition, who spoke to MSN News, was one of those unconvinced of the need for social distancing to fight the pandemic. This arbitrary blanket spread of shutting down businesses about putting all of these workers um, out of business is just, it's a disaster. In D.C. this week, Black Lives Matter organized a car caravan 
to protest the continued incarceration of people at the D.C. jail and the Hope Village halfway house, where there were two COVID-related deaths. It was announced this week also that the halfway house will close at the end of April. Jewel Stroman, an advocate for homeless families, posted a video showing her participation in a long line of cars outside the halfway house. Protesting at D.C. jail. An additional 5.2 million people filed for unemployment for the week ending April 11th, raising the total of unemployment claims to more than 22 million. Also this week, millions of Americans began receiving one-time direct deposit payments of up to $1,200 from the stimulus package signed into law last month, while millions more who must be mail checks will have those payments delayed while Trump insists that his signature be printed on each check. As people around the world prepare to celebrate Earth Day on April 22nd, the Natural Resources Defense Council, along with other groups, is suing the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency over the agency's recently announced non-enforcement policy, which allows companies to use COVID-19 as a reason to stop monitoring and reporting pollution without notifying the public. Gina McCarthy, president and CEO of NRDC, said, quote, During a pandemic that is hitting people with heart and lung disease the hardest, it is senseless to push forward a don't ask, don't tell policy for polluters that will allow them to make our air and water dirtier without warning or repercussion, end quote. Now, the single biggest polluter on the planet is the U.S. military and Code Pink Women for Peace marked tax day with a call for the U.S. to end the $80 million spent each hour on war while hospitals beg for basic resources to protect nurses. Carly Town, who directs the organization's Divest from the War Machine campaign, described the tax day action on the organization's show on Pacifica Radio. Code Pink and our Divest from the War Machine campaign took part in a, a large social media action on tax day, which is a symbolic day for a lot of Americans because it's, you know, the one day when we can really stop and think about where our tax dollars are actually being used at the federal level. In dollar amount, that's $740 billion a year that we spend on the military. Cold Pink is joining with World Beyond War to sponsor a five-part webinar series about divesting from the war machine. You can get more information at coldpink.org. And finally, in culture and media, the Movement for Black Lives and the SNCC Legacy Project are among the organizations that held virtual meetings, town halls, and rallies this week to organize in a way that allowed people to gather in one place from around the country and world. Charlie Cobb Jr., a journalist, professor, and former activist with the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, spoke on Thursday night at what would have been an in-person 60th anniversary celebration of the founding of SNCC. In the kind of white supremacist society that we lived in, the state was driven by the idea and the politics that meant that white people should control the lives of black people. So we had to fight for that at 
several different levels. One level was fighting the state. And another level was fighting for the federal government to pay attention to the needs and struggles of black people. And we also had to fight for black people. You know, there had been to think that they could take control of their lives. Along with several veterans of SNCC, Cobb established and operated the African-American bookstore Drum and Spear in Washington, D.C. from 1968 to 1974. And finally, fans of African film are mourning Sarah Maldora, a pioneer of Pan-African cinema who joined the ancestors on April 13, 2020, of complications from coronavirus. Her career included more than 40 films that featured the voice of the oppressed and dissidents. She is best known for the 1972 movie Sambizanga, about the 1961-1974 war in Angola for liberation. She died in Paris at the age of 90. And those are headlines and happenings. This is On the Ground on Pacifica Radio. Stay with us. on the ground, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. Well, Wednesday, April 22nd is Earth Day, and in fact, this year marks the 50th anniversary of the observance, which was launched in 1970 as a unified response to unchecked pollution of the environment. Earth Day 2020 is happening at a time when humans all over the earth are suffering from the COVID-19 pandemic, and the crisis has served as a thin cover to continue the assault on the victories of the environmental movement of the past 50 years. With me to discuss this assault amidst the pandemic is Ryan Schleter, a spokesperson for Greenpeace. Welcome to On the Ground, Ryan. Thank you so much for having me. Well, even before this pandemic, the Trump administration had turned the Environmental Protection Agency into the Environmental Pollution Agency. On March 26th, it announced a sweeping relaxation of environmental rules, uh, apparently in response to industry demands. So... From your perspective, what are the impacts of this rollback in March? Absolutely. We're seeing a broad rollback and a deregulation agenda um, that dates back to when Trump took office. And oil companies and lobbyists and polluters are taking advantage of this moment to really supercharge that agenda. These aren't new goals or new ambitions on their part. They're just seeing an opportunity while the rest of us are focused on survival and on uh, meeting this public health crisis to push that through. And so what we've seen in the last month or so are a number of rules being 
being attacked. So what you're referring to is the EPA announced a sort of sweeping um, suspension, indefinite suspension of environmental enforcement. So what happened last month is that the Trump administration and the EPA announced that they would be indefinitely suspending enforcement of environmental regulations across a number of industries. Um, So places like oil refineries or pipelines will now no longer be required to report on certain pollution levels or environmental standards that were in place. And the reasoning, the stated reasoning behind that is that the more people that have to go to work at these facilities, the more are um, in danger in a public health crisis. But in reality, this is something that these industries have been asking for for a long time. And the idea that they can't adequately staff their operations should raise major red flags about what other things are not properly being implemented or what oversight isn't in place at those facilities right now. And actually, this is something that the oil industry asked for. So on March 23rd, the American Petroleum Institute sent a letter to EPA Administrator Andrew Wheeler requesting that they relax reporting measures for the oil and gas industry for the duration of the COVID-19 crisis. And about a week later, the suspension of these regulations was announced. So this was in direct response to what the oil industry is asking for and in direct opposition to what people actually need, which is protection from environmental pollutants in a public health crisis. And I know this might be getting a little off the subject of pollution, but I know that oil industries also met with Trump in terms of possibly securing some bailout funds. Absolutely. Last week at the White House, seven oil executives who combined, they earned more than $100 million as individuals in 2018 alone. So these are some of the wealthiest individuals in the country. Two of them are multi-billionaires. They had a private meeting with Trump to advocate for measures to provide relief for the oil industry in a period of historically low oil prices and low oil demand. So the fact that multi-millionaires are getting an audience with the White House to request access to taxpayer money in the form of things like royalty tax relief or um, potentially being able to access loans from the government that were part of the stimulus package that should have gone to protect workers and families. It reflects where the priorities are for the Trump administration right now, and it's totally backwards. Right. I didn't want to get us off track, but I also didn't want to forget to mention that since you were talking about oil companies. Now, have you seen any impact so far of these rollbacks, this relaxation of monitoring from March? So it's a little early to say like what the impacts have been already. But what we know is that the communities that are already hit the hardest by environmental pollution, those on the fence line, those that are close to these refineries, these pipelines, these drilling sites, are primarily working class communities and black, brown and indigenous communities. Those are already the areas in the United States that face the highest exposure to air pollution, for instance. And we're now seeing more and more evidence suggesting that those communities also have higher death rates from COVID-19. And it's the logical conclusion there, and there's still research being done into this, is that increased exposure to air pollution makes it more likely to have really negative effects from a respiratory disease. So if these rollbacks continue and if all of these are allowed to go into effect, it's not going to impact the wealthy CEOs that are asking for it. It's going to impact the people who are out there in the world doing essential work, providing essential services, who are then exposed. Well, you know, as you stated at the start, 
since the Trump administration began, there have been these continued assaults on the environment. But I wonder if you might want to pick out some of the major rollbacks of rules that you feel have impacted the laws passed starting 50 years ago at the first Earth Day, uh, coming out of that seminal event, we had the passage of the Clean Water Act, the Clean Air Act, so many things that people have just come to expect would be permanent and that would always protect our environment. Absolutely. And the founding of the EPA itself came out of that same movement. And its mandate is to protect public health and the environment, which Trump has totally flipped on its head. And you're right, the administration has attacked pretty much any environmental rule it can in since 2017. So there's been attempts to weaken or roll back about 100 different environmental rules. And so some of the ones that people have probably heard of include the Endangered Species Act. Um, so Trump has he's repealed a bunch of rules that would allow oil companies to drill for oil and gas in new areas, including public lands, which are lands owned by the American people and maintained with taxpayer money that could now be open to increased drilling. He's rolled back regulations on methane from power plants. He's also rolled back a number of Obama-era rules. So one of the recent ones was a rollback of the fuel efficiency standards that were passed during the Obama administration, which also has a huge impact on air pollution. The clean water rule, he's gone after that. Um, He's gone after a law called the National Environmental Policy Act, which is the mechanism by which communities who are going to be impacted by an infrastructure project, so anything from a new highway to a pipeline in their community, the National Environmental Policy Act is how they are able to have public hearings and have a voice in that process. And Trump is trying to get rid of that voice in the process. And so the common denominator here is that this serves oil and gas executive interests, and it does not serve the people who are going to be working at those facilities or the people who are going to be in the neighborhoods surrounding it. So it's a huge environmental justice issue. So have the companies actually taken the bait and rolled back their own st- these previous standards and have companies actually say, okay, yes, I'm going to go onto this, you know, pristine public land and, you know, drill for oil. So that's, it's interesting that you raised those two industries, the auto industry and the oil industry. The auto industry did not ask for those rollbacks. Many, many car companies have more ambitious fuel efficiency standards that they've set themselves than what federal policy dictates. And so far, what we've seen is that they plan to stick to that. It was the oil industry that asked for those rollbacks as a means to increase oil demand via automobiles. And similarly, in terms of drilling, right now, nobody is talking about new oil and gas production because prices are so low and demand is so low. They're actually, Trump is, as of yesterday, is reported to be considering paying oil companies to leave oil in the ground. Um, So nobody's talking about a bunch of new drilling right now. But before this pandemic, the plans for oil expansion and exploration were off the charts, like exponential growth, um, sort of predicated on this myth of like perpetual demand for this product that we have to rapidly phase out and stop using. So definitely the oil industry should not be seen as like a good faith actor here. They're behind a lot of these rollbacks and the, the motivation is profit. It's not about protecting workers. It's enriching CEOs and shareholders. Oh, sure. That's for sure. So you mentioned the 
pandemic having this impact on businesses. And, and actually, I've seen a few articles talking about how clean the air is in certain places and how there's been this kind of immediate impact because you have fewer people driving and you know, fewer um, polluting actions happening so that people in India could see the Himalayas. There was this beautiful picture I saw. But uh, this is coming up on Earth Day. And so in reaction to these types of uh, attempts, attempted rollbacks, what types of actions are Greenpeace undertaking at this time? Absolutely. I'm so glad you asked. So in terms of these rollbacks, most of what Trump has tried to roll back even before this crisis, has been met with a number of challenges, of everything from you know being uh, litigated in federal courts, whether he has the executive power to do this, to states stepping up and saying that they're going to announce their own standards that are more ambitious than what the federal government was trying to roll back in the first place. That's something California is trying to do in the case of fuel efficiency. So there's a lot of hurdles for him to be able to enact this agenda, and Congress is another one of those hurdles. So right now we're asking Greenpeace supporters around the country to put a lot of pressure on Congress to really center the needs of people and communities and workers in all of the coronavirus response packages. So in the stimulus package, in the way they look at what the EPA is doing right now, and to try to act as a check against Trump's power at every possible opportunity. So the best thing you can do is to call your congressperson, call your senator, talk to them about this, ask them where they are on the record about you know, various environmental rules that might affect your community and about how the stimulus money is being spent. And then for Earth Day, we are really excited to be participating in Earth Day Live, which is going to be a 72-hour live stream, teach-in, protest, speeches. There's going to be art and songs and music, um, all led by um, youth organizers who are behind the youth climate strike movement. And folks who are interested in getting involved in that can go to earthdaylive.org. And there are a lot of ways to, you know, tune in. If you want to be involved in the organizing, there are ways to do that. And there's lots of different sort of like local spinoffs as well. So we're really hoping to take the sort of like energy and spirit of being out in the streets for Earth Day and take that all online in this era of social distancing. Right. Okay. In talking to activists, fighting on many different fronts, this seems to be the issue of whether this moment is going to accumulate more corporate power or more people power. So I'm happy to hear about your efforts to go in the direction of people power. (laughs) Absolutely. I mean, the choices that we make today are going to determine the path of this country for, for many, many years. You know, like with the idea that the federal government would spend trillions of dollars to respond to a crisis and stimulate the economy, talking to somebody who's worked on climate change for several years now, you know, if you had told me that like four months ago, it would have sounded crazy. And now it's taken for granted. It's not a question of whether or not we're going to do that is how it's going to be spent. And we absolutely want to see this money be spent as a down payment for a Green New Deal and a world that moves us beyond fossil fuels to a regenerative economy rather than an extractive one. So we're working really hard to make that happen. um, And we're happy to see a lot of people around the country doing the same. Okay, well, I'll have to leave it there. I've been speaking with Ryan Schleter, a spokesperson for Greenpeace. Thank you for m- so much for joining me, Ryan. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Okay. I want all my people around me. Everybody living good. Everybody eating good. Everybody should. I want all my people around me. 
Manka Danwei is a child of Liberian refugees. She is an organizer at Freedom Inc. in Madison, Wisconsin, which is an organization of Black, Hmong, and Khmer women, youth, and LGBTQI plus folks fighting against the root causes of violence for resilient and healthy communities. And then also Melody McCurtis is an organizer for Metcalf Park Community Bridges, a local grassroots organization on the north side of Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Their community-led investment plan focuses on intergenerational wealth, health and wellness, connectedness, and cultural vibrancy, safety, and civic engagement. And then lastly, we have Hoda Katabi. She is an Iranian-American writer, community organizer, and creative educator based in Chicago. Her creative political fashion work has been featured around the world. She is the host of Hashtag Because We've Read, which is a radical book club, and also the founder of an all-women, immigrant, and refugee-run apparel manufacturing workers cooperative. And she says she runs on saffron ice cream and colonizer tears. Welcome to our fabulous panelists. Um, you can't hear it on your screens, but people around the country and possibly the world are applauding for you right now. Um, so again, this panel is on the impact of U.S. militarism on our communities here in the U.S. as well as abroad. So I'm going to start with Manka and Melody. Um, I'm going to ask you to talk about what is the impact of U.S. militarism in your community in general? And then what is it in particular in the context of the COVID-19 pandemic? When we talk about what U.S. militarism looks like in Black communities in America and here in Wisconsin. It means that Black communities have no real representation or decision-making power. We pretty much exist for the benefit of the white coloners. Um, and there's a use of violence and a threat of violence for us to stay in line, um, which leads to a lot of the things that our people see today, mass incarceration and mass displacement. So for Wisconsin in particular, that violence and threat of violence is carried out by the police. The policing per capita in Madison, for instance, the capital where I work, we don't spend as much money as other cities around Wisconsin, like Milwaukee or other bigger cities in the United States. But when you look at who is actually being policed, who is being arrested, who is being surveilled continuously, it's all of the Black people here in Madison. It's all the Black neighborhoods. I live on Allied Drive. There are police cars around the clock on this one block for a very small number of folks. It looks like mass displacement and incarceration. People are moving here to Madison to chase economic opportunities, and they're being criminalized for surviving poverty. Black people, like what it looks like specifically during COVID-19 is that Black people are not recovering from COVID-19. Um, and that's not because COVID-19 chose Black people um, or, or hits us harder biologically. It's due to structural racism. Um, it's due to our access to health care. It's due to us being essential workers, right? And it's due to poverty. Even if folks wanted to go to the hospital, we have many reports among our residents here and the folks that we work with saying, I was sent home or I was waiting in the ER for hours and hours and just decided to go home. So, yeah, that's what it looks like here in Madison. And I'm going to pass it off to uh, Melody to go ahead and talk about what it's looking like in Milwaukee. Yeah, thank you. 
Let's go to Melody. I want to ask you to add to what Manka just said. And then also, you know, we saw after 9-11 um, how the government used that as a crisis, uh, that crisis an opportunity to consolidate government power in the name of fighting terrorism and national security. Um, so I also want to ask, are you seeing that now or do you anticipate the government doing the same thing in the name of fighting the pandemic? Definitely. Uh, thank you, Monka, for that segue to uh, just give a snapshot of what Milwaukee is going through right now, um, being a hyper segregated city with a lot of uh, black and brown folks in the city of Milwaukee um, who are uh, in constant um, occupation of the police force because uh, 47 percent of our uh, budget, our city budget goes to the police. So when you look at how much money is allocated for health at two percent and then we look at how um, the the city's uh, north side, which is predominantly black, all of the uh, COVID-19 cases are primarily on the north side. So um, when, we, when we're talking about COVID-19, I want to bring up the point of value, right? There was no value for black and brown people before this happened. And this is really shedding light on um, mm-hmm. the disinvestment, the disenfranchisement. And now our folks are left to uh, be on a stay-at-home order without uh, food, um, mm-hmm. a way to get their medication and different things like that. And as a result, what our officials did was say, we're going to arrest people or we're going to ticket people if we see you outside or see you with crowds, even though they know that there might be 10 people living in a one bedroom apartment. It might be 11. So how can they stay, you know, um, within the guidelines of this stay at home order? So that's what we're dealing with in Milwaukee on the ground um, as far as that. And they are using this COVID-19 pandemic to uh, uh, instruct more harm and more um, ways to occupy uh, the the black and brown communities here in Milwaukee with more uh, more of a police presence, harm, um, and trauma. Thank you. Um, let's bring Hana into the conversation as well. Um, so zooming out now to a global perspective, um, let's talk about U.S. militarism abroad um, for Hoda. Um, are you, do you see connections to what Manka and Melody just discussed? Oh, 100%. Um, and thank you so much for just all of that really, really amazing um, conversation just leading into this. I think that everything that you said is so important and so deeply connected. Um, I think that what is really important to note is that we have a culture of militarism in the United States that has really just created a false reality. Um, in order to justify its own existence and its continuous expansion. So America builds cages, as we all mentioned, and fills it with our people's bodies and calls it justice. Um, But it also bombs Afghanistan and calls it freedom. Um, It also administers violent sanctions on Iran or embargoes Gaza and calls it humanitarian alternatives to war. Um, And also bans our people and militarizes the border and calls it national security. And so we're seeing all of these words um, being thrown around in in securitization and safety. Um, But what is especially notable and in this particular moment in history with COVID-19 is that this virus has shown us almost overnight that none of this is not only not true, but in fact, it's the opposite that keeps us safe. So over the past few weeks, hundreds of people who were incarcerated were released due to the incredible work of badass organizers um, around the country. And just two months ago, Trump had doubled down on the Muslim ban and expanded it 
Um, but now he's begging for people to enter the country on expedited visas. So we see that the U.S. is sort of falling apart in many senses, but that's because these systems of capitalism and militarism are not made to keep us safe. Um, if keeping people in jails made us safe, then why did they agree to release hundreds overnight? Um, if militarized borders keep us safe, then why can we now get expedited visas to come to this country? We see the, um, that we're actually safer when people are released from jail. Right now, if people are still in jail, that actually is going to make the virus spread faster. And so when people are released, it actually keeps us safer. Decarceration keeps us safer. Um, when resources are diverted from making weapons into or maintaining the United States' nuclear weapons um, and not funded into healthcare, we're unsafe. And so when we see bills like the Authorized Use of Military Force or the AUMF, um, it makes it even more outlandish because giving a green light to use all necessary and appropriate force to secure the homeland is because our state, wait, where is our safety um, right now at the hands of a, the gross incompetence of the Trump regime um, in containing COVID-19? And it's already cost the lives as of today of over 10,000 people in this country alone. So you want to use all necessary and appropriate force to shoot the virus with your shiny new tank? Um, and so 100%, yes, this is about um, safety looks like diverting those resources from the military and the military complex to healthcare. those $700 billion spent annually on endless wars to education and to reparations and to healthcare. But I also want to be very clear, um, and this may be a little bit of a controversial comment, but I still want to say it because um, these resources aren't even ours to begin with. Um, this wealth is produced in sweatshops in Ghana um, and Cambodia and Bangladesh, and it's mined in Burkina Faso. It's stolen from Iraq and Iran. And so this culture of militarism has not only warped our worldviews of what is safe, and it diverts our own funding, our own resources from warfare, to, from healthcare to warfare, but it also has this delusion as to what is even ours to begin with. And I know that, like, specifically right now, things are very, like, dire and scary, and it feels kind of weird saying this, but I think that this moment in particular is actually incredibly optimistic um, because this virus is literally teaching us, and we can see this on a global scale, that our health and our lives are deeply interconnected and interdependent on a global scale. So we're not even calling to lift sanctions so Iran has a fighting chance against COVID because it's the right thing to do, but because if Iran cannot contain the virus, Americans will also continue to die here because the virus will spread. Um, but it's also powerful because it means that our struggles are connected and that's visually that are connected in ways that we haven't been able to push that language before. Um, and I think that it's really powerful because if there's literally any moment in history in my lifetime, and I'm sure many others' lifetimes, um, it's going to be this moment that we can actually push back, um, repeal the AUMF, repeal um, sanctions on Iran, um, lift the blockade on Gaza. I think these are really powerful moments that we might not never ever get again. And we can think of this like an incubation period almost to think of the most wildest and radical ideas of what a world is that we need to survive and then actually work on building that in solidarity um, globally and literally a transnational um, and intersectional movement that works for everybody. That was Hoda Katebi and before her Melody McCurtis and Mankar Donwe speaking at the Racial Justice Has No Borders Town Hall on Monday, April 7th. 
The facilitator is Hyun Lee, National Director of Women Cross the DMZ and Korea Peace Now. After a brief break, Chantel James has more voices on the impact of COVID-19 on vulnerable populations. This is On the Ground on Pacifica Radio. Stay with us. Georgetown University's Disability Studies program continued its event series online with Dismantling Settler Colonialism and Ableism, Disability Justice and Decolonization. Moderated by disability activist Lydia Xe Brown, the discussion's panelists were Jen Dierenwater, a journalist, speaker, and organizer of the Cherokee Nation of Oklahoma, Najma Johnson, Executive Director of Deaf Abused Women Network, Dustin P. Gibson, co-founder of Disability Advocates for Rights in Transition, and Aza A. Altarefi, Research and Advocacy Manager for the Disability Justice Initiative at American Progress. Nearly a thousand people from across the globe attended this discussion on how settler colonialism marginalizes disabled people to the extent that efforts to dismantle ableism must be seen as united with the struggle for liberation from the oppression imposed by imperialism and settler colonialism. Aza Altarefi defined ableism and signaled some of the dangers in viewing the COVID-19 crisis through the framework of settler colonialism. Aza. Before I jump into some of what I wanted to cover, I wanted to begin by kind of defining what I mean when I talk about ableism. Um, And at its core, when I'm talking about ableism, it is a system that is designed to designate and categorize and rank bodies and minds as either normative or deviant, as either desirable or disposable, and as either productive or completely without value within the confines of this capitalist system. And that is a fundamentally and inherently racist project. It is a fundamentally and inherently imperialist project. And as a result, uh, these systems are not simply systems that intersect, but they depend upon one another and perpetuate one another. And so like Jen, I wanted to use an example within the current context of the COVID-19 pandemic to really illustrate those connections and make that clear. And so one of the things that I noted within the last few weeks, and I'm sure has also caught the attention of many of you, is how dramatic the pivot to using war as a metaphor and as a way to ground our response and shape our response to the pandemic. And from the outset, the first time I heard it, I was deeply disturbed by it. But it's also a really illustrative and um, really constructive way to understand how these systems intersect. Because when you talk about the response to a pandemic within the terms and frame of war, you are doing several things. One, it designates casualties as an inevitability. 
Put simply, it means that there are people who have to die and that we are to just accept that as an inevitable outcome of war. It also positions the state as taking on an enemy. And by taking on an enemy, um, what the state is doing is categorizing bodies and minds that are perceived as either being likely to become a vector for disease. So what does this mean? It means that black, native, and other negatively racialized bodies and minds will be categorized as dangerous and greater carceral control, greater violence against them will be justified because their bodies and minds are seen as a vector of disease, as a threat to the order of white supremacy, of capitalism, and of the concentration of power and wealth at the top. So it justifies then what we are already seeing on a large scale. We are already seeing states and localities and the federal government turn to the carceral system in order to enforce stay-at-home orders. So I live in and the colony of Virginia, um, and within Virginia, one of the things that we have seen is that the enforcement is not only deeply carceral and punitive, but from the outset, Virginia State Police made it very clear who the enforcement would target. Within about a day of the announcement of the stay-at-home order statewide, what this Virginia State Police posted on its own Twitter account was a reminder that covering your face in order to protect against disease infection is legal. But covering your face in order to conceal your identity is a crime. It will be prosecuted, and those who perpetrate it will be punished and imprisoned. And the threat of imprisonment and jail within the context of a pandemic is even higher because they are made into death camps because they force people in such close settings that they cannot possibly physically distance. And because those are systems that are inherently violent, that were designed to reproduce violence and exact it on marginalized bodies and minds. To view what real-time participants contributed to the dialogue, use hashtag D-I-S-J-U-S-G-U on Twitter. The next event in this series is Disability Organizing in the Age of COVID-19, Medical Rationing, Eugenics, and the Precarity of Mutual Aid, and will be held at 7 p.m. on April 21st. From Northeast D.C., this is Chantal James. Hey, hell, I pay the price. All I want is to be left alone. 
we're going to have to be on guard throughout this crisis for several things. The first is the effort to try to utilize electronic forms of mass surveillance in, in various guises to try to actually locate people uh, who may be infected instead of using traditional proven medical methodologies for doing that, uh, starting, of course, with absolutely reliable testing to begin with. And I think we also have to be very concerned about uh, what we're seeing in, in terms of these enforced stay-at-home orders, uh, assaults essentially on freedom of worship uh, and, and assembly uh, in ways that are not being handled responsibly, not being handled effectively. And then finally, I think uh, we have to be concerned about the long term. You know, this this crisis, we are going to set a lot of uh, a lot of precedents here that we should be very, very concerned about. This is On the Ground, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam. And the voice you just heard is Patrick G. Eddington, a research fellow in Homeland Security and Civil Liberties at the Cato Institute. And I'm sure you you never thought you would hear someone from that right-wing think tank on On the Ground. But Eddington was actually part of a politically diverse town hall on our civil liberties in the age of COVID-19, sponsored by Defending Rights and Dissent and The Nation magazine on Thursday night. That's Thursday, April 16th. And we expect to actually bring you more voices from that program soon on the show. Now, to explain why I played that clip and to give a little background on my next segment, well before Congress left on its recess that is now not expected to end until May 4th, the House of Representatives did not take up a vote on a Senate bill reauthorizing controversial portions of the Patriot Act that allow the NSA and other intelligence agencies to continue spying on innocent people across the United States. So now, as the COVID-19 crisis continues to place Americans from coast to coast in what many feel is like a rehearsal for more social control by the police, military, and spy apparatus, civil liberties advocates are speaking out. So with me to discuss the latest on this is moderator for that Thursday town hall, Chip Gibbons, Policy Director for Defending Rights and Dissent. Welcome back to the show, Chip. Well, thank you for having me back on. Well, let's just start with that reauthorization process. You know, in the midst of all of this real horror show with the COVID-19 crisis, we haven't really paid attention to what Congress did authorize or not authorize before they left. Can you just start with that process, where that is, and what this authorization would do? Sure. A number of the controversial provisions within the Patriot Act amending the foreign intelligence surveillance powers are up for sunset. So every so many years, Congress has to vote on them again. And there's always a big debate about what, if any, reforms are going to make. 215 is a section in the Patriot Act that is up for reauthorization. It allows for them to access, quote unquote, any tangible thing. It's the legal justification the NSA used for its bulk collection of metadata. It's a very controversial provision. The last time it was up for reauthorization, the Congress passed the USA Freedom Act, which was supposed to deal with some of the concerns with the NSA surveillance, but defending rights and dissent felt like it didn't go far enough. And in the interim, what we found out is that a lot of the key problems were never fixed. So there's been a huge fight about reauthorization and the House adjourned without taking up the issue. They did do a temporary authorization of the 
provisions for, I believe it's 70 days, but this was really a sort of a real victory for privacy hawks because people were really afraid they were going to ram through some sort of permanent reauthorization. But instead of that, they just left with this sort of 70-day authorization, I believe. And when they come back, you know, if they ever come back, this is going to be another fight about, you know, opposing a clean reauthorization or opposing any reauthorization. That's always, it's a 77-day extension. I'm sorry, not 70 days. That's always a controversy whether or not you want to put reforms in it. I mean, Ron Wyden in the Senate had proposed a number of reforms requiring uh, warrants to access between types of data or whether you just want to let it blanket sunset. And we've taken both positions over the years, depending on the likelihood of what the reforms were and what ones were, were up for reauthorization. But I mean, the concern is that the Congress will come back and just do a clean reauthorization of this when no one is looking. So there is a lot of concern they could use this environment to push through something when we're not looking. So one of the reasons why this is so important to people right now, of course, is because of this very altered state that we're all living in. If before these spy agencies had the power to listen to our phone calls, listen to our communications, that that being basically uh, homebound, not being able to circulate, to uh, protest, to gather, to exercise our civil liberties in the streets makes us more vulnerable to this type of surveillance and spying powers. So um, is that the concern that uh, people have right now? Or, or maybe just, you know, lay out some of the various concerns that people have about that reauthorization given the COVID-19 crisis? Sure. I think the biggest concern is just that Congress could push it through or they could hide it in an essential bill um, when it was reauthorized temporarily back in November or December, they put it in a continuing spending bill to prevent a government shutdown. So we know if these controversial surveillance, but that we know with some of these controversial surveillance tax or controversial surveillance powers, they'll just put them in other bills or they'll sneak them through. It'll be something you have to vote for, you know, or else the government will shut down or coronavirus funding won't happen. So that way, you know, progressive or libertarian members of Congress who otherwise might have voted against them will feel pressured into voting for them because they don't want to be seen blocking this this sort of necessary funding. Right. And then the coronavirus situation creates this whole other set of civil liberties concerns, especially with the stay-at-home order. And the, what we've been most concerned with at Defending Rights and Dissent, but there are legitimate public health concerns here. There's a legitimate case being made for social distancing, but who's going to enforce that? And our concern is not that sort of the social distancing measures are illegitimate, but what happens if they give the police the power to enforce them? And you can imagine they won't be forced equally. They won't be enforced the same way in Georgetown as they would in a working class um, majority black neighborhood in D.C. We know that, you know, we also know that like police community contact is not social distancing, like arresting someone requires you to get more than six feet away from them. And we also know that prisons, courts, jails, etc. are uniquely susceptible to community spread. So you have these sorts of situations. And there was a situation out in Ohio where a gentleman broadcast people in, I believe it was Cincinnati, 
uh, out in the street doing sort of like partying as opposed to social distancing and the police arrested him and the prosecutor actually made comments implying that he the person would get coronavirus in jail and 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 die right so like getting sent to jail is now potentially a death sentence with what we know about how this virus spreads and if we have the police out there supposedly enforcing public health by arresting people and putting them in jail that would actually undermine our response to to the disease to the virus Now, in D.C., we know that the National Guard was activated, and this raised the alarm of many people in the Black Lives Matter movement, the appearance of the National Guard in neighborhoods. Is this the type of activation or activity you're concerned about? Yeah, I would say whenever a military entity like the National Guard is given the authority to sort of police civilian neighborhoods, that is concerning to us, yeah. Whether or not... It's justified in the situation or not is, is a different question, but I would say just as a baseline, it is concerning in and of itself. And I would, I would like to see what the public health justification is for having the National Guard as opposed to a non-military unit to perform those functions. So in addition to this type of policing, are there any other dangers that these new stay-at-home orders pose for Americans? So my biggest fear is that they'll be enforced with police and that they'll result in over-policing of already over-policed neighborhoods. They'll result in more unequal and, and racist policing. They'll result in actually spreading the virus by having the police in contact with people or by sending people to jail. And I think we already know we have too much policing, too much criminalization, and too much incarceration in this country. And those types of tactics have never been a public health solution. They're a social control solution. But with the coronavirus, they're not only not a solution, they would actively undermine the public health. I was also concerned about the increased reports of violence toward Chinese and other Asian Americans or Asian people in the United States. And whether there has been uh, any concerted effort by law enforcement that you've seen to address this, to actually bring people to justice who are assaulting people. You know, can Asian Americans depend on uh, policing to protect them as opposed to uh, to um, target them or profile them? Unfortunately, police don't have the best record on, on that issue. But I will say something. The racism against Asian Americans is extremely disturbing to us at Defending Rights and Dissent. Very early on into this pandemic, we condemned the xenophobia that was coming out of the White House and coming out of Republican members of Congress, right? The federal government's response to the coronavirus has been very poor. It's resulted in a loss of life, and it's very clear for the president and some people around him and his supporters, as opposed to taking responsibility, taking accountability for his own failings, as well as the larger failings of the United States public health system, he has decided to scapegoat China, which has resulted in hate crimes against Asian Americans. Exactly. Well, we will certainly keep watch on this issue. It's very important to us. It's very important to our listeners. I've been speaking to Chip Gibbons, policy director at the Defending Rights and Dissent organization. Thank you for joining me today, Chip. Thank you for having me on again. And that will do it for today's episode of On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. You can contact us, work with us, support us, and 
Listen to all of our current and past shows on the website we maintain, onthegroundshow.org. If you like the show, let us know by liking us on Facebook or Twitter under On The Ground Show. And our Facebook page has the picket sign with green lettering that says On The Ground. And you can support us on patreon.com forward slash On The Ground Show. Thank you to our Patreon supporters. Thank you so much for your encouragement. The music we played this hour included Shikaria, Passage, Kindred, The Family Soul, All My People, Rockwell, Somebody's Watching Me, and our theme music is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. I'm Esther Averam. Until next time, take good care and keep raising your voice. Peace. <laughs>